0: Uh, so uh, this morning, I actually uh, I had the opportunity to preach uh, at Next Step Community Church, uh, which is formerly known as Recovery House of Worship. Uh, we all, uh, many of you, are aware of Recovery House of Worship now. Uh, Next Step Community Church. Uh, now, a couple. I tell you this for a couple reasons. The first reason is uh, Next Step skews a little bit more on what we might call the charismatic side. Okay, so what that meant was when I was preaching today, there was a lot of amens. There was a lot of people talking back. There were a couple people even started singing while I was. And let me tell you something. They got a really good sermon. Okay, they, like the feedback i It got my energy going okay I gave him a good it was, it was a good sermon. If you want a good sermon today, loosen up all right you know uh, let me hear it talk back to me i if you if I say something good, you say Amen, Right? right? You're not going to interrupt me. Um, I, it's it's going to feed me, okay? This is, uh, should not merely be a monologue. Let's make it a, a whole thing. Uh, but I tell you that uh, uh, for two reasons. First was that reason. Second reason was I got to spend the morning with Pastor Edwin Cologne. Um, many of you know Pastor Edwin. He's preached at this church many, many times. And I had the opportunity to fill in for him today um, and got to spend the morning with him. But if you don't know Pastor Edwin Colon, uh, he's somewhat of a legend in Brooklyn. Uh, He's pastored for about 30 years in this city. Uh, His church is in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, Their church is full of people uh, that might not feel welcome in any other church. Um, He is a pastor who has pastored the marginalized in this city, the houseless, the addicted. Um, I mean, they are a church that loves the people that Jesus loves. And uh, Pastor Edwin, because of his ministry, um, he really is kind of uh, an elder statesman in this city uh, among uh, Christian leaders. And so he has mentored me over the last seven years. He's mentored uh, many other pastors over the years. And he's just one of those guys that oozes compassion and wisdom and kindness and encouragement. Uh, a couple years ago, for the, the first time he preached at Crossroads, uh, somebody from our church, not going to name you, uh, but came up to me and said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard preached at Crossroads. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. Um, but, it but he's that kind of pastor. Um, but I tell you all that to say that every time Pastor Edwin speaks, whether it is to a group or whether it is in a private conversation with me, I cannot help but lean in. I want to hear everything he says. Uh, His words carry so much weight to me because he's a man who is faithful to God. He's been faithful in ministry for decades. He's wise, and I know he cares about me. Um, So when he speaks, I pay attention. And I, I hope that you have someone like that in your life. I hope that you have people in your life that you honor them, you hold them in such esteem that when they speak, you hold on to every word that they say now we're beginning a new study this week in the New Testament letter of 1 John and this letter is like having a wise dependable godly kind man lean in and speak to you and speak encouragement speak wisdom and speak truth into your life this when we study the letter of 1 John it is like having the John the apostle one of Jesus' closest friends, speak directly into our lives, speak encouragement and truth into our lives. And at the time that John wrote this letter, John was um, an elderly man, most likely. Um, And he was most likely, at the writing of this letter, the last remaining apostle alive. Um, As you may know, many of the apostles, most all of the apostles were persecuted and martyred uh, for their faith and for their leadership. And John was likely the last living apostle. And he writes this letter at the, towards the end of his life. And he knows he's the last of his kind. He knows that he is the last of a generation. He knows that he's in his final years. And he knows that he is passing on his final pieces of wisdom and encouragement to the people of God. And all throughout this letter, he refers to us, the readers, as little children, he says, my little children, I'm writing this to you so that, I, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that. And that's not a condescending thing, but that is the words of someone who knows that he's a, that, who sees himself as a spiritual father to us. And so he's speaking to us with great wisdom and great kindness and tenderness. And the series is titled, the, the, this sermon series is titled, so that you may know. And this is taken directly from the final chapter of the letter of John. When John says, letter of 1 John, when he says, I've written these things. He says this at the end of the letter. He says, I've written this letter. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing it to Christians. And he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John has written this letter to us to encourage us, to assure us that our faith is is certain. And that, our, that, that because of our faith, we can know that we have eternal and abundant life. And so we're going to begin this letter. It's going to take us through much of the fall, but we're going to begin with the first four verses. And John starts with a bang. He begins, jumps right into it. He says, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, jumps right into the the heart of the matter. Uh, Most New Testament letters, if you read through the New Testament letters, they most often start with, hi, it's me, apostle so-and-so. I'm an apostle of Jesus by the will of God to the church and wherever, whoever they're writing to. I've been praying for you. hope you're doing well. Most New Testament letters start with about five to eight verses of sort of introductory material. This is who I am. This is who I'm writing to. This is what I want for your life. John, he's having none of it. He jumps right to the point, no introduction needed, which tells me that of all the apostles, I think John would have been the apostle to New York City. If he had, you know what I mean? He doesn't waste any time. All the other apostles trying to figure out what they want at the bodega, you know, John walks in, he's like, bacon, egg, and cheese, everything bagel, toasted, salt, pepper, ketchup. He's out of there. He got, he's right to the point. He's not wasting any time. He, he knows he's got something to say to God's people. And what is it that he has to say? He's ready to share his heart, his deepest desire for the people of God. And he's gonna, And basically this verse, he's gonna, this book, this letter, he's going to tell us the same things over and over and over again. And in these first four verses, he goes ahead and tells us what he wants us to know. And so today, these first four verses are going to provide sort of a foundation for us, which we're going to build on over the next several weeks. This is kind of an overview of the letter. And we're going to look at the, the basic themes that John wants us to see um, and encourage us with as we live the Christian life. And the first encouragement he gives, and remember, this is a kind, older person that we should trust and hold in high esteem. And we, we should, his words are dependable. But the first thing he tells us is, hey guys, it's really true. It's really true. Imagine that you're somewhere... Hanging out with a group of people, and you know it gets kind of. Uh, people are talking about all sorts of things, and then the conspiracy theories start happening, right? Hopefully, you've never been in one of those situations. It can be very uncomfortable. But let's say, for the sake of imagination, we're in a we're in an environment where a bunch of people are saying, "Hey, you know the moon landing never happened. It didn't happen." You know there are people who say this. People will say the moon landing is fake. It was, just an, it was done on a soundstage in Los Angeles. It was an attempt to bolster American exceptionalism. And it may have taught us a valuable lesson about you know, putting our minds to things, but it never happened. Okay, imagine this is happening. I hope I'm not offending any of you right now. Um, but imagine this is happening. And then Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk in the door and say, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh yeah, we're just saying the, you know, the moon landing. You know, that's a whole fake thing. They would say, No. Absolutely not. It happened. I'm a credible witness. I was there. I took the steps. I said the speech. You know, one small step. I took the leap. I did the, I've got a moon rock sitting on my bookshelf at home. It happened. I was there. This is what John is doing. He's saying, I was there. I mean, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life this is how he begins his letter and then he repeats himself a few more times i've seen i've heard i've touched i've felt i've seen i've heard i've touched i've felt what has he seen and heard and touched and felt he says the word of life which which was made manifest what is that remember another book that john wrote john the gospel of john in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god who is he referring to what is the word of life it's jesus And John begins right out the gate, he says, Jesus, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I've felt him, I know him. John is saying, I have spent actual time with Jesus. The one who existed from all eternity came to earth and was my friend, I ate with him, I walked with him, I followed him, I touched him, I heard him, I leaned on him, I know his voice, I know his mannerisms, I know his character, I know what jokes he laughs at, I know what things make him weep, I know that he died on a cross, I saw it, I was there, I know he rose from the grave, I I saw the wounds in his hands, it's all true John is saying, it really happened. Jesus really did these things, and he really transforms lives. You know, we all have moments, if we're honest, we all have moments of doubt when it comes to our faith. And it is always good for our souls, for someone we trust, to look into our eyes and say, it's really true. You know, the scriptures say, we overcome by the words of our testimony. And today at uh, Next Step Community Church, they, one of the parts of their service is someone comes up and gives a testimony of their life. And this woman, Evelyn, came up and she said, hey, I used to do these things. I thought I would find this there, but I never found it there. And this is all that happened to me. This is what I lost. This is what I gave up because of my, my poor decisions. And here's the, th- the, I thought hope was lost, but Jesus came And here's what he's done. He's transformed my life. He's transformed my marriage. He's transformed my children. And isn't it good for the soul to hear a story of someone say, this is what I was. This is what God has done. And you go, man, on the days where I doubt, man, it's good to hear stories of people who can say, this is true. And this is what happened to me. And this is what John is saying to the people of God. And the reason John says this is because much like the moon landing conspiracies, um, the people in the Christian community at this time were beginning to have doubts about the basic claims of the Christian faith. People were, um, were, were, were saying all sorts of things that, that they, were, they were saying that this might not be true. So this letter, the, the, the letter of 1 John was written nearly 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Like I said, most of the apostles uh, are dead at this point. New teachers are beginning to come into the church And these new teachers are starting to flirt with an idea that Jesus wasn't really a man. That he was a spirit, he came as a spirit, kind of looked like a man, maybe an appearance, an apparition. Um, But he wasn't really a man who lived and died and did all these things. Um, He was a spirit who came to teach us and be an example for us, but he wasn't really a man. Now, the reason these teachers were saying this is because at this time in history sort of Greek culture is kind of pervading the thought of the day and the prevailing philosophy of the age was something called gnosticism which essentially says that the material world that's evil it's completely evil it's bad it's broken and if you want salvation fulfillment it can only be found in the realm of the spiritual or in the abstract so we think of stoicism Life is cruel, suffering, meaningless. All we do, all you must do is cultivate virtue. So it takes the physical, it pushes it over here and says what's most important is the spiritual, the internal stuff. Um, that now, Buddhism didn't exist in the first century, but Buddhism is a form of Gnosticism. It says the world is bad. It's just suffering. We want to transcend this material world. And so this is what was being taught, this idea of Gnosticism was being taught um, in Greek culture and in, uh, in uh, all over the, the land at this time. And this was what virtually every non-Christian believed uh, at this time. This was the prevailing view of secular culture in their age. And uh, w- what this often meant was that the secular culture thought Christians were dumb and weird. God becoming a man? No! God would never become material God would never become uh, uh, broken. The material world is bad. God would never submit himself to such a thing. And all these Christians in Ephesus, which is where this church that John is speaking to is most likely from, they were beginning to absorb the thought forms of secular philosophies around them and were blending it with their understanding of Christianity. So they began debating, did you think Jesus was really, um, really came to earth and lived as a man or was it, like some, was it his spirit? And maybe it looked like a man. How could God, because God wouldn't come to an evil material world. It must have just been his spirit. And these Christians, these, these teachers thought they could hold this view and it would allow them to hold on to their Christian identity but still kind of be respectable in the eyes of the world. <laughs> um, and they, what they were doing was moving Christianity from the realm of history. This is a person and an event that happened to the realm of ideas. This is what we believe and this is what we think. They were trying to make Christianity fit neatly within the cultural views of the day. They did not think they were destroying the faith. They thought they were improving it. And John says, no way. I was there. I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with my own ears. I touched him with my own hands. And today, there's a temptation for us as Western Christians in the modern world living in this city There's a temptation for us to want to downplay certain parts of Christian teaching that are strange to the world around us, things that are out of fashion. And then there's a temptation for us to then elevate the parts that are acceptable but minimize the parts that maybe the world thinks is weird. And we often think that what we're doing is improving Christianity. We think we're making it more palatable to the world around us, more respectable. We think we're doing PR for Jesus as if he needs it. And what we need are prophetic voices like John to speak into our lives and say, no, hold to what is true, because it is true, because it is true. And John is adamant that Jesus is not an abstract idea. Jesus is not merely God's spirit. He's not good vibes, you know. He's not, you know, a good teacher, but he lived, he died, he resurrected, and he ascended. It really happened. John says, I was there. Jesus was born. Jesus lived, he ate, he slept, he worked, he toiled, he actually died. I saw his body come off the cross. I was with his mother while she wept. I saw him go in the tomb and I saw him in the upper room with nails in his hands, with scars in his hands and scars in his feet. I saw it. He actually died. He actually resurrected and he actually ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he now is at this moment preparing a place for those who believe in him. And this is why, here's why John is so serious about making sure we know this. Because if Jesus was merely just a teacher, or merely just a spirit who taught ethics and ideas and philosophies, then we can't really know him. We can only study him. And that's not good news, is it? That's not good news. Think about this. If Christianity is just a set of ideas, a moral philosophy... What hope does that give to children? A child can't be a philosopher. A child can't operate within the realm of these ideas. Think about our friends, for example, at the Guild for Exceptional Children. Adults living with uh, intellectual disabilities. If Christianity was merely a faith for the studied and the privileged and the educated, then what hope does it offer to those who can't study and can't be educated? But if Jesus was really a man, then we can all embrace him. He is for us, he is for all of us. It is a faith for the whole world, not because it's lofty ideas, but because it's an event that actually happened of a person who actually lived. And John says, You can know God because it's really true. He really came, he really died. He really resurrected. He really ascended, and he's really preparing a place for us. And you can know him because I know him. It's really true, he says. The second thing he tells us in this book, in this letter, is he says you can experience communion with God. Life with God is possible. He says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. And you're like, okay, great. The apostles saw and heard it. And you know, the people that were, that, that were there, they saw and heard it. But he says, we proclaim this also to you. He says, it's for all of you. What we experienced, you can experience. John says, I've experienced the friendship and the lordship of Jesus, and now I am proclaiming to you that you can experience this as well. You can know that you have eternal life. That's why I'm writing you this letter. You can know that you can have joy in God. That's why I'm writing you this letter. That's the thrust of this entire uh, letter that John writes. Here's how you can know Jesus. Here's how you can become like Jesus. Here's how you can know you have eternal life. John is writing this letter because he wants us to know what is true. That's why he says, I was there. It's true. It's fact. He wants us to know that we can have eternal life through Jesus. But also, John doesn't want us to be led by our doubts. You see, these teachers were coming into the church and they're casting doubt on what they thought, what people initially thought to be true and what they believed and what they hoped in. And then these new teachers are coming in and going, yeah, maybe it's maybe we misunderstood it. Maybe it's just more it's, it's good vibes. It's up in the abstract realm. And John and, and John knows that these Christians are, are wrestling with doubts, and he goes, no, no, no. I don't want you to be led by your doubts. I want you to be led by your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did. And so he goes through great lengths in this letter to say, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, this is what Jesus did. If you noticed um, in the beginning of the sermon, we have the sermon graphic that's kind of like, hey, this is the series, so that you may know. Um, There was a triangle on that, Said, so that you may know, and then there was a triangle. Um, The reason there's a triangle as kind of the theme logo for this series is that throughout this letter, uh, John essentially gives three angles for becoming like Jesus and knowing Jesus. The first is knowledge of what Jesus has done. He's trying to teach us to know what Jesus has done. Second, he says, if you want to know Jesus, if you want to experience communion with God, you've got to be obedient to what what he calls you to. Because it's in obeying him that you learn his character and see what he's calling you to and you experience his faithfulness. And then third, he said, it's loving others. So there are three kind of enemies of the faith, right? There's uh, doubt, disobedience, and isolation. Those three things, if we live with those things, it will lead us away from the goodness of knowing Jesus. But John says knowledge, obedience, and love, those are the pillars on which you can build a life of becoming like Jesus. And he says it begins, however, it begins with knowledge. If you want to experience communion with God, you've got to know what God is like, and what his son Jesus is like, and what his son Jesus has done. My friend and former pastor, a guy by the name of J.D. Greer, once told a parable, uh, a word picture that I think his father taught him, and he said, imagine that there are three men walking together in a line on the top of a narrow city wall. So there's a narrow ledge, three men are walking all in a line together along this narrow wall, He says, the first man in the line is named fact, the second is named faith, and the third is named feeling. He says, because the wall is narrow, they need to pay careful attention to where they step. But as long as feelings eyes are on faith and faith's eyes are on fact, they will be fine. He said, but the moment that faith takes its eyes off fact and turns around to check on feeling, both faith and feeling will fall off the wall. You see, our feelings can quickly deceive us. A weakness that our enemy loves to exploit, he loves to approach us in the midst of temptation and doubt or in a time of spiritual defeat or depression and tell us that if we really belong to Jesus, we wouldn't feel this way. And so we begin to have doubts and we begin to take our eyes off of the one in front of us. And the enemy tries to use our feelings to get us to doubt our faith Feelings, however, are the fruit of faith, he says. They should never be its source. And J.D. Said, he said, my dad used to say, you don't feel your way into belief, you believe your way into feeling. And John says that the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done is the first step in experiencing communion with God. The second step is obedience. As we study this letter, you're gonna see that John's gonna have some strong words in the days ahead, and he will say that you cannot it is impossible to experience the joy and the quality of abundant life that Jesus offers if you are in disobedience to him. If you are not obeying and walking in the way of Jesus, it will be impossible for you to experience the gift and the joy that he offers. 1 John five one five through 5-7, we're going to look at this next, next week, but it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what that big yellow circle is for too, the light. See, there's meaning to this. You thought this was just abstract. But John says, if you want to know Jesus, you must step into the light. Jesus does not dwell in darkness. He dwells in light. And so if you are walking in darkness, the good news is that God's grace is always available to you and you can step out of darkness and into His marvelous light and He will welcome you over and over and over again. That is the grace of God. But the truth that John is telling us is that if you're going to remain in darkness, do not expect to experience the joy of Jesus. Because he dwells in in unapproachable light. And if you want to know Jesus, you've got to step into the light where he is. So communion with God is possible, John says, through knowing Jesus and through obeying Jesus. But he says, finally, he says, if you want to know Jesus and you want to be assured of eternal life, to know that you love God, then you must love others. Love for others is the evidence of your faith, John says. And he says, essentially, that fellowship is the path to joy. I love this. He says, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and then with his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says, we are writing these things so that our, meaning collectively, mine, yours, all of us as the people of God, our joy may be complete. Now, if I said, who wants partial joy? I well, was like, no, I don't want that. Who wants complete and total joy? That's what I want. And John says, complete joy is found in fellowship with God's people. John is writing to a church, most likely in Ephesus, that's going through some serious challenges. There was infighting. There was disunity. There were disagreements about theology. And into all this controversy and division, John speaks in and says, you guys know that because of all your infighting, you are forfeiting the joy of God. You are forfeiting experiencing the joy of God in your life and in this church because you guys are fighting with each other. What a waste, he says. Figure it out. <laughs> Unify. Share something, a common vision for who, what God is calling you to, and you will experience the joy that God wants for this church. He says, I'm writing this letter so that you will have fellowship and so that our joy will be complete. John says, if you want to experience complete joy, it will never come alone. There is this myth, this lie that goes around these days that says we can have a life with God on our own. God never said that. God God intends for the people of God to be the blessing in your life That reminds you of his love. That is what the church is. And Jesus never imagined an idea that someone could follow him without the church. John says, if you want to experience complete joy, it will not come with just you and Jesus. It will come through the gift of fellowship with God's people. And J.I. Packer, who's a British theologian, um, he said, what is meant by fellowship in this verse? Does it mean hanging out? Gossip? Cups of tea. He's British. Um, No. What is being referred to is something of a quite different order and on a quite different level. The Greek word for fellowship comes from a root meaning a root meaning common or shared. So he says fellowship then means common participation in something either by giving what you have to the other person or receiving what he or she has. Give and take is the essence of fellowship and give and take must be the way of fellowship in the common life of the body of Christ. Christian fellowship, J.I. Packer says, is two-dimensional. It must be vertical before it can be horizontal. He says, we must know, you must know the reality of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, before you can know the reality of fellowship with each other in our common relationship to God. And he quotes First 1 John 1, three: that which we have seen, we proclaim also to you. This is how the church works. Okay, You experience communion with God. That which you have seen and heard and felt and known and experienced, you proclaim to us. That which I have seen and heard and felt and experienced with God, I proclaim to you. That's what Josh and Phoebe and our worship team, what they've experienced with God, they proclaim to us through song. The, the, the mission of the church is this for us to, to gather together, proclaim to one another the goodness of God, scatter into our lives, and throughout the week, we, 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 we have communion with God, we learn about God, we know God, and then when we come back together in small group or whether it's in church, we then proclaim it back to each other. And think of the gift that you get from this, because I look around this room and there's people uh, that you, you have different skin colors than me, you're from different backgrounds than me there are people in this room with different size bank accounts people with different types of apartments people that live in different neighborhoods people with different cars people that we, all sorts of different things there are many of you that speak different languages there are all there's so much diversity in this room and we all experience God God is the same yesterday today and forever but we all experience God differently and we proclaim we gather together and we proclaim him together to each other and we're all blessed by that Man, I don't want a life with God that's just what I experience. Man, I want to know what God's teaching you and what you have to say and what you've experienced. This is the joy of being in the church. And I love this church. This is a healthy church because we do this well. There's no division. There's no infighting in this church. I love that. Because we have something in common, and that's Jesus. And we share it with one another. I think of, you know, true fellowship True fellowship. Listen, there's a bunch of differences in this room. If I ask everybody who voted red, who voted blue right now, we might have a brawl, right? There's a lot of diversity in here. But here's the beauty of the church. True fellowship. There's a lot of Mets fans, Yankees fans, Giants fans, Jets fans. True fellowship, however, is when the one thing you have in common is greater than all the smaller differences that you have. So let's back to the sports metaphor. I think about a team, a sports team. Uh, I took my daughter to a Mets game a couple of weeks ago, her first ever Mets game. And uh, just, guys, uh, raise your hand. How many of you have ever hugged a stranger at a sporting event? Oh, I have. Yeah. There is something that happens when you step into an arena, a stadium, There's a whole bunch of people from all over the city, and from the surrounding areas that have different lives, different jobs, different beliefs, different backgrounds, different political persuasions—all that sort of stuff. But when you come into City Field or Yankee Stadium or wherever, Barclays Center, the Madison Square Garden, when you come in to cheer for your team, all those different—none of that matters when you're cheering for your team. And when your team wins the big game, what happens? Everybody gets up and cheers, and you're hugging the stranger next to you, and you're shouting, you're screaming, and my daughter loved it, was we were leaving City Field, Mets beat the Dodgers five to one, it was awesome. We're, we're leaving City Field, we're walking, you know, just walking toward the seven train, and everybody as they're walking out of the stadium is just, let's go Mets, let's go Mets, and you look around, and you're like, and everybody's saying, we won, we won. I'm like, "We." Like, dude, you look like you have not been to the gym in 15 years. You didn't win anything. But we're all saying, we, we, we won, we won. We've all got Max Scherzer's name on our back. We don't know that guy. But we've got that thing in common, and we're all excited about it. And here's what heaven is going to be like. A bunch of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and political party, and socioeconomic status. And we're all gonna be gathered around the throne of Jesus wearing robes of white, and the name Jesus is gonna be on the back of it. You do? It? Hey, thank you. And the name Jesus is gonna be on the back of it. And for all eternity, we're going to sing with the angels and with the elders and with the apostles. We're going to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And it's not because we won the game. He won the game. And we're all saying, we won. We won. Because in that moment, all of the differences fall aside Because we've got one thing in common. That is what awaits us in eternity. But John says, that's what the church is supposed to be today. You can experience it now. This is the message of the gospel that John is trying to tell us. He's saying that through Jesus, we can know God. And through Jesus, we then celebrate with each other what God has done. And the church... What we do in here and what we do in groups throughout the week is practice for the new heavens and new earth. The day when we will be gathered around the throne with Jesus in common, singing, Holy is the Lord Almighty, the earth is filled with his glory. That's the path to joy, folks. Communion with God is possible because it's really true. And fellowship with God's people is the path to joy. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for John. God, we thank you that you not only were John's savior, but you were his friend. And that John, in his kindness, has written a letter to us to tell us what friendship with you is like and that we can have it. And so, God, would we experience more of you? John said he wrote this letter to us so that we may know that we have eternal life. God, we want to know and be assured of the life that awaits us. And so God, would you give us this abundant life and would, we give, would you give us the knowledge of it and the confidence of it? And as we study this book for the next several weeks, would you teach us and guide us and transform us? And it's in your name we pray, amen. Church, would you please stand?